Amen. I want to start off by sharing a very special story with you. Some of you guys might have heard this story before, some of you guys have not, but it's a very interesting story. In the darkest part of the night, a ship's captain cautiously piloted his warship through the fog-shrouded waters. With straining eyes, he scanned the hazy darkness, searching for dangers lurking just out of sight. His worst fears were realized when he saw a bright light straight ahead. It appeared to be a vessel on a collision course with the ship. To avert disaster, he quickly radioed the oncoming vessel. This is Captain Jeremiah Smith. His voice crackled over the radio. Please alter your course 10 degrees south. Over. To the captain's amazement, the foggy image did not move. Instead, he heard back on the radio. Captain Smith, this is Private Thomas Johnson. Please alter your course 10 degrees north. Over. Appalled at the audacity of the message, the captain shouted back over the radio, Private Johnson, this is Captain Smith, and I order you to immediately alter your course 10 degrees south. Over. A second time, the oncoming light did not budge. With all due respect, Captain Smith came the private's voice again. I order you to alter your course immediately 10 degrees north. Over. Angered and frustrated that this impudent tailor or sailor would endanger the lives of his men and crew, the captain growled back over the radio, Private Johnson, I can have you court-martialed for this. For the last time, I command you on the authority of the United States government to alter your course 10 degrees to the south. I am a battleship. The private's final transmission was chilling. <sighs> captain Smith, sir, once again, with all due respect, I command you to alter your course 10 degrees to the north. I am a lighthouse. Your call. You want to know something that's very interesting? Sometimes we can be on a course that we think is the right direction, but we come to find out that it is exactly the wrong direction. And it is special times that God comes into our life. He interrupts the path that we are going and he says, it's time to turn right. Sometimes our attitude, sometimes our mindset, our personalities are leading us in one course and we think, no, this is the right course. And God says, it's time for me to step in. I want you to listen to me right now. And we can choose at that very moment that we're going to listen to him. Or we can continue on to that path and we will come to discover that it is the path that leads to destruction. The Bible says there is a way that seems right to man, but the end thereof is the ways of death. The end of death. You know, I was talking with a young adult Bible a young adult, uh, study last night. And we were talking about why God is a jealous God. Do you know which of the commandments God states that he is a jealous God? Which one of the commandments? Which one of the commandments does God state that he is a jealous God? You better look at Exodus 20 if you don't know. Which one is it? It is the second commandment, right? About not having any idols, which are images of other gods, right? But you ever thought to yourself, why in the world does God jealous? Well, if you take in basic, a Sabbath school quarterly class, you'll come to discover that God is not jealous for his sake. He is jealous for our sake. But the question is, why is he jealous for our sake? If you go to Psalm 16, you come to discover, the Bible says, their sorrows are multiplied who hasten, hasten, that means run after another God. 
In other words, the reason why God is jealous for you is because He does not want you hurt. And He knows worshiping other gods leads to hurt, to pain, and eventually death. And so God steps into our lives and He says, I am going to interrupt the course that you're heading into, and I'm going to teach you something, and I need you to listen to me. But we can choose at that very moment to just to push aside God and say, no, Lord, I'm going to keep going on that path. And God runs ahead of us, and he says, it's time for you to stop right here. Yet we can push him away, and we're saying, Lord, I know what I'm up to. I know what to do. I know I'm in the right. And then God steps again, and he says, I'm telling you one more time. You need to stop right here. And folks, God's voice gets louder. But the closer we are, or the further we long in that path, what we'll come to discover, the more we resist His voice, the less we hear it. And so God comes to us right now, and I believe He wants to interrupt some things in our lives. Can you say amen to that? And praise the Lord for His interruptions. Amen? Alright, now what we're going to be doing, we're going to be taking a good look at the Gospel of John. So take your Bible, let's go to the Gospel of John. You know what's so interesting about the Gospel of John? It's much different than the rest of the Gospels. By the way, how many Gospels are there in the Bible? Four. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. How many of the Gospels were actually written by the twelve disciples? You have the Gospel of Matthew. He was an actual disciple. And who else? John. You want to know what's so interesting about the Gospel of John? This is, such, this is so mind-blowing when you think about this, okay? Do you know that the Gospel of John is so unique in the way it's written, it's not just the whole spectrum of Christ's life. When you take a good look at Matthew, when you take a good look at Mark, when you take a good look at Luke, it, it's the whole spectrum of his life. But when you look at the Gospel of John, what you will discover is that Two-thirds of the Gospel of John is actually about the last six months of Christ's life, and one-third of the Gospel is actually about the final days of Christ's life. The Gospel of John is so unique. It is unlike any other Gospel. You can see why John became more like Christ than any other disciple. He was utterly concentrated upon the closing scenes of Christ's life. And so what we're going to be doing is we're going to be taking a good look at the Gospel of John. Take your Bible. Let's go to John chapter 13. John chapter 13. If you're there, go ahead and say amen. John chapter 13. All right. Let's start with verse 1 and 2. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come into the that his hour had come that he should depart from the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the what? Now notice this. Chapter 13 is probably one of the most solemnest chapters you will ever read. It starts off by saying almost this kind of sad words. This is the time where Jesus knows he's about to go. He's about to depart into the world. And then John states something that's so beautiful. He says that Jesus loved his disciples to the what? End. He loved them right to the end. The same backsliding, the same fumbling, the same faulty disciples. The Bible says he loved them right to the very end. Right to the very end. And when I think about it, I'm blown away about how beautiful... This verse actually is. 
Now, what's so interesting about this, this chapter has to deal with foot washing. Now, I know sometimes people will see the communion table up there, or they hear that it's communion, and they think to themselves, well, you know what, since it's communion, I'm just going to go to a different church. But what they end up discovering is that the church they end up going to also has communion. It's all planned strategically. But folks, here's something I want you to understand. Communion, foot washing, is meant to bless us rather than to harm us. Can you say amen to that? We actually grow from the communion experience. I promise you this, that if your hearts are open to what God is communicating to you from this time all the way to the very end of the service, you will realize that the Lord Jesus has spoken to you personally. Personally. And so John chapter 13 starts off with something very interesting. The Bible states very unequivocally that Jesus loved his disciples, this ragtag, motley crew of people, right to the very end. Remember what I said to you about the Gospel of John? One third is actually written about the closing scenes of Christ's life. We are now introduced to the very beginning of the closing scenes of Christ's life. Jesus knows that his disciples need to understand some very important lessons. Now you're thinking to yourself, I know exactly where this sermon is going. You'll see that you are wrong. So he knows he needs to communicate some very powerful things to these disciples. He knows this is the closing scenes. He knows there's not much time left. It's very valuable. So you can imagine that the lessons he's going to bring to those disciples have to be dramatic. They have to penetrate into his heart, into the heart of the disciples. So he knows what he has to do has to be designed in such a way that it's going to effectually communicate such powerful lessons that will do the most amount of work in the the shortest amount of time. Let's keep going. John chapter 13, verse 2. And supper being what? And did the devil having already put it in the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to what? Betray him. Now I want you to notice something. Actually it says in the gospel of Luke that Satan entered into the heart of Judas. Now here's a good question I want to ask you. Is Satan omnipresent? Yes or no? Is Satan omnipresent? Are you sure about that? Some Christians act like he is. Is Satan omnipotent? Yes or no? Wait, you're telling me he's not everywhere. He's not all-powerful. Does does Satan know everything? Okay, so Satan doesn't know everything, okay? So would you say that Satan is a limited being? Yes or no? He is a finite being. Therefore, being Satan... If he wants to cause the most amount of damage to Jesus, if he wants to cause the most amount of issues for Christ, the place he is going to be has to be very strategic. Because he is not omniscient, he is not omnipotent, he is not everywhere. So where does he choose to enter into to cause the most amount of damage to Jesus? Into the very heart of Judas. One of the disciples, who was supposed to be one of the close disciples to Christ, when Satan wants to cause the most amount of pain to Jesus, the most amount of frustration, to do the best that he can to tempt Jesus, he actually inserts himself into Judas's heart. Think about that. He's very strategic. What do you think caused Jesus the most amount of pain when he was dying on the cross? It was when he was dying the second death. But do you know what made that even more miserable? The fact that his own disciples were forsaking him. 
So while the devil is thinking to himself, how am I in the world going to hurt Jesus? The Bible says he actually enters into the heart of Judas. But here's something very remarkable. I want you to see the next verse to this. Verse 3. Jesus. What word did I say? Okay, now I want you to go back to verse 2 one more time. And supper being ended, the what? Okay, what word was that? The what? Okay, now we're introduced to the devil. But go back to verse 3. Jesus. Let's go back to verse 2. I don't think you got it. And supper being ended, the devil. Now go to verse 3. Jesus. You know what you are seeing here? You are seeing the great controversy being played out right here in a very special way. Where is Lucifer? Where's Lucifer? Location-wise. Man, you guys need to wake up here. He's in the heart of Judas. But now look at verse 3. Now Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he was coming, that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper, laid us out his garments, took a towel, and girded himself. Where was Jesus? Location-wise, where was Jesus? I want you to think about this. This is very important. I want you to see the great controversy here. Here you have on one side, you actually have the devil. He has inserted himself into the very heart of Judas. And now you have Jesus right over here on this side. The great controversy was never won by argument, was it? It was never won by uh, being able to verbally express views and to defend ideas. It was won by character. Can you say amen to that? It was won by character. But what we have right here is super important for us to understand. We are actually seeing the location of Lucifer right here, and we are seeing the location of Christ. One is in the heart of his most prideful disciple, and you know where Jesus is? He is right at the very feet of that prideful disciple. And side by side, they're put together. And all the universe can see this great controversy. They can see these two sides right next to them. And they're looking back in amazement because they are so blown away, they are seeing very clearly the character of God and very clearly the character of Lucifer. Now let's keep going. Verse 4 and 5. He rose from supper and laid aside his what? Garments, took a towel, and what? Girded himself. Verse 5, after that he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was what? Girded. Now what's so remarkable about this, this is actually the Greek word lention, which means a cloth, a long drape that one wears and is also used to clean something. Now that's interesting because this wasn't like, you know, we have our communion services, you take the rags out, Right? And you have one of the deacons give you a rag. There's nothing wrong with that. And it's sterilized. It's been washed. It's been bleached. And you give the rag there to the deacon. He gives you a new rag, right? Or the water is very sterile. It's very clean. It's been, there's some bleach in there. A hint of bleach to make sure there's no bacteria in there. And I understand all those things. But I want you to understand something about this word lention. This was super interesting. Because this was actually a garment that he actually put on himself that was not separate from his clothing. It was still attached to his clothing. He was actually cleaning their feet with clothing that was still attached to him. This wasn't like take a rag or a towel and clean and just throw the rag away. This was still attached to his body. Can you say amen to that? Folks, Jesus cleans you with his own robes. Amen? Have you ever seen somebody clean something with their own shirt? 
Like someone who has like a runny nose, like a little kid, you know, and they'll be like cleaning their arm. Or have you ever seen somebody who has glasses? They'll take the glasses out and they don't have like a, a clean cloth and what they'll do is they'll kind of take, you know, take their own shirt and clean it. Have you ever had somebody take your glasses and clean it with their own shirt? Maybe if you have a mom. Moms do that, don't they? But you know what Jesus does? He actually girds himself, he gets on the ground, and he takes part of the the clothing that he's wearing, and he begins to clean it with his own clothing that's still attached to him. In fact, there was one Roman general, or one Roman emperor by the name of Kaluga, and you know what he wanted to do to debase his senators one day? He actually had them wear a lention. They would come to him girded in this towel. And they would have the towel ready, wrapped over his arm that was still connected, and he was telling them to wait on him. He wanted to embarrass these senators. But here you have Jesus actually putting on this lention, and he's cleaning with his own cloth, or his own uh, clothing that's still attached to him, and he's cleaning the feet of these disciples. And it begins to blow your mind when you begin to realize, wait a second, this Jesus is cleaning the filth of his disciples? With his own robes? Can you say amen to that? You want to know something? I was supposed to wear a coat today. You're like, really? Yes, I was supposed to wear a coat today until I discovered something. There was this stain here that apparently the dry cleaners couldn't get off. It's very noticeable. I didn't want to wear it today. But guess what? I am wearing the perfect robes of righteousness today. This morning I asked Jesus to put them on to me. And folks... You need to be wearing the perfect robes of righteousness as well. And Jesus willingly offers it to you. Can you say amen to that? This is his clothing. Like Ellen White says, there is not one thread of human devising in this clothing. In other words, there is nothing human, man-made about this clothing. That when Jesus offers to you his righteousness, it is purely a heavenly robe. There is not one stain of earthly dirt on it. And so when he's cleaning away your sin... He's completely cleaning away your sin. Can you say amen to that? Amen. Well, let's keep going. I want you to notice something very interesting right here. Go to verse 7. John chapter 13, starting with verse 7. Actually, verse 6. Then he came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my what? Feet. You want to know why Peter was so emphatical about that? You're thinking to yourself, well, it's because this was supposed to be the jobs of the servants. Wrong. Did you know that this was not the job of the Jewish servants? It was completely confined to the Gentile servants. In fact, rabbis, there was Jewish sources that I read today that talked about how rabbis, they would not permit their Jewish servants or slaves to do the job of foot washing. So this rabbi, Jesus, actually gets on his knees and he begins washing the feet of his disciples. This is the creator of the universe. Do you remember the last time he was on his knees? When he was creating man. And now you hear, see him here, he's, the creator is on his knees recreating man. And it's so beautiful because what Jesus was doing was definitely defying the norms of that day. He was doing something so extraordinary. But let's see what else happens. Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? Verse 7, Jesus answered and said to him, What I am doing, you do not understand now, but you will know after this. Verse 8, Peter said to him very emphatically with an absolute negative, you shall never wash my what? Feet. 
I don't want anybody touching my feet. That's for the Gentile servants. Jesus answered, if I do not wash you, you have no what? Part with me. Can you imagine this? Here's Jesus. He sits around with his disciples, and he sees the future of every one of these disciples. He knows about Peter, who one day is going to be crucified upside down. He knows about James, who's going to be executed first. He knows about John, who one day is going to be dipped in burning oil, but going to outlive all the other disciples. He knows about Thomas, who's about to be stabbed in the back by a Hindu priest. He knows about Judas, who's going to betray him. He knows about all these other disciples that are there. When he sits down with them, he knows everything about their future. And you can imagine at that very moment, he has to communicate such a lesson that's designed to utterly change their hearts. And he does something so mind-blowing, he gets on his knees and he begins to wash the feet of these disciples. And I can guarantee none of them ever forgot this moment. Ever forgot this moment. Well, let's keep going. Verse 9. Jesus, verse 8, Jesus answered, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely what? Clean. His righteousness was covering them. And he says, But you still need another type of cleansing. And you are clean, but not all of what? You. Who was he referring to when he says, Not all of you are clean? Judas, does anybody know the reason why he did this foot washing? The main reason, Ellen White points down Desire of Ages, the main reason why he did this foot washing was because the disciples were not prepared to enter into communion. Their hearts were full of contention. It even says in Desire of Ages that when Jesus actually stepped into the room, their glances at each other were full of contention and strife. But we don't have that here in Ceres Church, do we? No. Praise the Lord. We are perfect here. So he goes there, and he's noticing their glances at each other. Some of them are bitter towards each other. Some of them have... And by the way, she even says that Judas was the most exacting and severe upon the two of the disciples, James and John, the youthful disciples. He was actually more exacting and severe upon them. These disciples were constantly fighting, constantly bickering, constantly trying to vie for the, the, the greatest place. And Jesus comes into this situation, and here he's trying to communicate such a blessing of the communion experience, and he knows that none of them are paying attention right now. He knows they're not paying attention. They're so full of themselves. And so he gets on his feet, and he does something so dramatic. And by the way, you want to know something very interesting? Their dissension caused so many problems for them, it actually hindered their ministry. Jesus knew unless this problem was solved the ministry would not be able to go forward. So he takes the place of the servant. One of something that's very interesting, if you read Matthew chapter 17, you will read about the disciples who went up on the top of the mount of what? What did they go up to the mount to see? Anybody know? Matthew chapter 17, Jesus transfigured. And who did he take? Peter, James, and John. Did you know that these three disciples, by Jesus taking them, completely excited the jealousy and contentious spirit of the other nine disciples. They saw Jesus take Peter, James, and John. And by the way, the very fact that Jesus took Peter and James and John was not because they were special, but because they were special. Amen? Teachers often will spend more time with the slower students. In fact, you also notice that Peter, James, and John are the only three disciples that got brand new names. Why? Because they all had character, big character problems. 
And so he gets up there, he takes Peter, Peter, James, and John, and he is transfigured before them, and they see the height of God's glory. But do you remember when they come down the mountain, all of a sudden, they see the nine disciples arguing with the Pharisees and arguing with the group of people, and the reason why is because there's a man who has a son who is demon-possessed. Do you remember that story? So here they are, the the three disciples see the height and the beauty of God's glory, and they come down to earth, and they see the worst of humanity. Right then and there. Now, what's so remarkable, Jesus, he simply rebukes the demon. Boom, it's out. And the disciples come to him and they said, hey, how come we couldn't cast out the demons? And the Jesus says, because of your what? Your unbelief. Now, here's where it gets very remarkable. But Jesus says something so interesting. But I tell you, anyone who has faith as a mustard seed shall say to this mountain. What mountain did the disciples, three of the disciples just come off? The Mount of Transfiguration. You know what Jesus was saying to the nine? Because of your unbelief. But if you have faith, you can get rid of this mountain. And Jesus wasn't just referring to a mountain. Look, I know that a mountain, moving a mountain is very impressive for Jesus and God. But here's the thing. Jesus is not really concerned about moving mountains. But he is concerned about moving the mountains of unbelief and pride and jealousy and contention and most of all self. It was actually self that stopped these nine disciples from being able to cast out the demons. And that's why Jesus said, you see this mountain, the mountain that we went up upon, the mountain that you got so jealous about. If you have faith, God can take this jealousy away and you can cast out this demon. No problem. The same problem was constantly occurring over and over and over again. You know what's so interesting about dissension and unbelief and pride is that it causes division. Can you say amen to that? God wants us to be united, to press close, to press close, to press close. I like what I heard at one camp, this camp meeting. The speaker, I love the African-American meetings. You got to go to them, they're wonderful. And there's this one preacher and he's talking about how this one church member came to him and was like, Pastor, I went to this church and there was a lot of dissension there. There was a lot of division and there was a lot of apostasy. So I left and went to another church and there was a lot of division there and apostasy. So I left and went to another church and there was a lot of division and jealousy and apostasy. And I left and now I'm here at this church. Pastor, what's going on with the churches? And the pastor looks at him and says, Son, you want to know something? The common indicator is this, the denominator is this. Every time there's dissension and apostasy and jealousy, you're there. And here these disciples are right here, are right before the cross, and they themselves are full of dissension, they're full of strife, they're full of pride, they're full of self, and Jesus knows that this is going to stop the gospel. And he has to do something so dramatic. He gets on his knees, the king of the universe. Can you imagine angels at that moment just, oh my goodness, this is like obscene. The king of the universe actually comes here, and they're watching Jesus, and they can imagine, okay, Jesus is going to lay one big smack against all their disciples, right then and there. And as all the angels are watching this scene, they see Jesus gird himself, and they're scratching themselves, these angels. And then they see the king of the universe kneel and start washing away the dirt and their soiled feet. Folks, back then, people didn't wear Nikes, they wore sandals, and their feet gathered all the dust and disgusting things from the ground. And Jesus gets there, and he's just there, and he begins cleaning it with his own clothes. And you can imagine all the angels just putting their wings over their eyes, saying, oh my goodness. They're turning around. These angels cannot imagine what in the world Jesus is doing at that moment. This is the king, the highest authority in all the universe. The one who created these beautiful galaxies, the most 
powerful things out in the world. God created the mountains and the universe and the galaxies and the beautiful stars. And here he is, just a speck. But he gets down and with this utter humiliation begins washing the feet of the disciples. Now the disciples were blown away by the condescension. But let me tell you, I guarantee the universe was flipping out at that moment. Go to verse 10. Jesus said, he who is bathed need not only to wash his feet, needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him. Therefore he said, you are all, you are not all clean. Verse 12. But when he had washed their feet, taken their garments, he said, do you know what I have done to you? Jesus knew what he was doing when he washed the feet of Judas. In fact, Desire of Ages says something so important. I never knew this. It says this, that Judas actually was right here, right next to Jesus, and John was right there, right next to Jesus. And these two are right next to each other. And all these other disciples are there, and their other disciples are there, but right next to Jesus are Judas and John. She says in Desire of Ages, at that moment, Jesus got on his feet. When he began this foot washing, he first started with Judas. And as he was washing the feet of Judas, she says over and over again, his heart thrilled, thrilled over and over again. His heart thrilled to confess his sin because by this time he had already begun the process of betrayal. But his heart was just yearning as he was seeing the Messiah bowing down and washing his feet. And she says over and over again, she used these words, his heart thrilled and it thrilled and it was just wanting to confess and say, Lord, I have betrayed you, but it would not, it would not. Pride was there and it would not. He would not. But his heart was yearning to do it. And she says something so interesting. She says, but as John was the very last one, there was no, there was no pride in his heart. And she says he neither felt rebuke nor slighted because he was the last, the very last disciple. He saw it all. Folks, when you begin to understand something about the foot washing, you begin to understand why Jesus was doing this very dramatic thing because he was trying to get the disciples ready to experience the communion, the partaking of the bread and the juice. An imbibing of the gospel through a tangible means. The communion is far more special than we really think it is. Because Jesus joins us. And he sits in the pew right next. And when you get it from one of the deacons, it's Jesus actually passing that out. Folks, I want to really urge you that you would partake of the foot washing. And let God do his work during the foot washing. And if you have offenses against somebody, you go to that person and you say, I don't care what I've done. I apologize. If there's something in your heart, sometime you need with God, you take that moment of loan before you go to the foot washing. And you let God do his work and then you come to the communion prepared and ready to experience the beautiful blessing that God has for you. And I promise you this, you will be changed. Amen? Let's pray, folks. Father in heaven, Lord, thank you. You washed all of us and you desire to do it again. Thank you, Lord, that your robes are pure and they are righteous, and you offer it to every person free. And God, as we partake of this, may we imbibe the spirit behind it. And Lord, may our hearts come into contact with you, God, the God of the universe who humbled himself. Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, Or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.